Well, uh, my name's John. I'm a person in long-term recovery, and I want to tell you it's really good to be here. Um, I have this odd sense of comfort being around people that I understand and who understand me, and yet I have butterflies in my stomach because, uh, I don't know, <laughs> I just do. But um, I thought that maybe what I what I would do is just share with you a little bit about my background and a little bit about my drinking, the problems it caused, and what I have been doing in my to stay in recovery. So a little bit about me, I guess, um, on a personal level is I, I grew up uh, in a military family. My father was career army. And so we moved around a lot. And so I got to live overseas. and I got to live in different places around the United States. And my uh, family, my mother and father, were both from a little town in Florida, uh, where we go back many generations. And I say that because culturally, it was a very, it was a very uh, kind of a Southern family where um, if my father addressed me, I would answer, yes, sir. And my mother was ma'am. And uh, that was partly a military thing too, I think. But I, I grew up in kind of a strange household where um, I had a lot of uh, love and laughter, uh, but there was also um, uh, there was also some just uh, really um, bad things happening too. <laughs> so it was like not all black and white. Um, I learned later though, as I as I thought about as I as I went through the steps and I look back at my past, um, I know that my parents were doing their best, and um, you know they weren't all good and they weren't all bad. But uh, altogether, I have to say that my childhood was a good one. And, and I enjoyed moving around and meeting different people. And I can see how that experience has helped me later on in life. But there was a certain amount of, um, I, I felt insecure in my own home um, because I would get a lot of, well, I would get beaten and I would get a lot of negative um, talk from, from my mother and uh, just a lot of, lot of stuff going on in the household. So I never knew what to expect. If the, day, if the day would be that I would get beat and called names or the day that we would all sit together and laugh and feel loved. And so that had me on edge. My um, parents would have these parties um, and they'd have all my dad's army buddies come over. And of course they'd drink and smoke and all that and music and laughter and I used to listen to those parties and um, at the, in the morning, and I'm just like eight years old, nine years old, um, I would go down and I would um, drink whatever leftover whiskey or whatever was in the glasses. And I didn't know what I was doing or why I was doing it. But looking back, I was using it as medicine. It was, uh, you know, I'd, I'd had a, I had a taste of wine at a Thanksgiving dinner. So I, I knew it made me feel better. And um, and on an unconscious level, I guess I knew it made me feel better. So I really started out with uh, drinking pretty early in life. Um, and what's interesting when I think about my drinking is the first time I got drunk, I swore I would never get drunk again. And if that's not the sign of an alcoholic, I don't know what it is, but I, I did stay sober. I was like, you know, ridiculously young, maybe 12 years old drunk and uh, hated that and swore I would never drink again. And uh, when high school came around, of course, I drank. That's what we did.
So now I was thinking about this the other day. It's this is something that might mean something to me, but maybe not so much to you. But I, 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 my drinking really started in the 1970s when I was going to high school. And I think that that's significant, at least here in the States, because in the 1970s, the culture was a lot more um, liberal, I guess, or lax about things. So um, in the, the town that I lived in, I lived in Kansas, and Kansas was actually one of the first states in the United States that would outlaw um, liquor. And they still had very, very tough um, drinking laws when I was going to school there in the 1970s. But the town that I lived in, Leavenworth, Kansas, it was wide open, which meant that they didn't follow the laws. <laughs> so in, uh, in when I was just a 14-year-old kid, uh, I could go to a bar anywhere in Leavenworth and uh, order a whiskey or any, any damn thing I wanted. Um, it, it, just really, it just didn't really matter. And we would drive around town drinking, and if the cops would find us, they would just ask us to pour the beer out, and it was just no big deal. My drinking at that time, um, I know my friends drank with me. Um, I, I never personally felt like I needed to do anything, but I would hear from other people. I would hear from teachers. I would hear from my parents sometimes um, that uh, comments about my drinking, even some friends, but I never really internalized it during my high school years to think that maybe I had a problem. Um, now, what, I, what happened though, as my drinking progressed, it progressed in the 1980s. And in the 1980s, our society got really strict when it came to um, drinking um, and almost everything. So uh, I, I, I grew up in this environment where it was a party all the time. <laughs> so all of a sudden, they would throw you in jail for for, for stuff that they would they would in the past not um, mind so much. But I I was 19 years old when I first realized or started thinking that I had a problem. So I was really getting into the stage where I was recognizing that drinking was keeping me from doing things that I wanted to do. Um. And I would think that I would get, I would need help. And, and, and at the age of 19, I saw an advertisement in the, in the local newspaper for an AA meeting. And I thought about going, uh, but I told myself I was too young. So I did not go. And um, so my drinking just progressed. I, I, I left college. I lived at home. And by the time I was 21, uh, just before my 21st birthday, actually, uh, my mother committed suicide from a drug overdose. She, uh, she had uh, suffered from depression um, all of her life. And uh, anyway, so I was with her when, when that happened. And I, I just, of course, you know, uh, anytime you are a survivor of a suicide, you take on a lot of the guilt. And there was also in my family, um, we kind of stigmatized her death. So it put me in this position that even if I could or even thought about talking to somebody about how I felt, I couldn't be honest about how she died because it was so stigmatized in my family and maybe in society as a whole. So at a couple of weeks after her death, um, I don't know if you guys ever have a drink that you ever really remember really well, but I did. And it was, it, was a, it was a little bit after her death. And somebody gave me a shot of whiskey to help me 
feel better. And it did. It made me feel better. And I will never, ever forget that feeling from that shot of whiskey. It was honestly the best shot of whiskey I ever had in my life. And it's just, it, it was a turning point for me. And so here I was with something that would make me feel better. I had, I was traumatized by this death that was so stigmatized. I couldn't even talk about it. So I guess alcoholism had its way with me for five years. And again, I drank as I did the first time I got drunk, which was that I didn't always intend to get drunk. In fact, most of the time I didn't. I would tell myself I was just going to go out and have a few, and um, I wouldn't. And so I started getting in trouble. As I said, it's the 1980s, and they started um, getting really tough about uh, drinking and driving in particular. And uh, so I had like uh, getting started getting DWIs. And if I wasn't getting a DWI, there was always some other damn thing that, that I, some ticket I didn't pay or something. So I started experiencing what it was like to get arrested and put in jail and all of that. And so in 1988, I, um, I had my last drink and I was arrested for drunk driving that night. And uh, the next day I, I got out of jail and I was um, looking for my car. Uh, I had no idea where it was and that was common. And so I, in my search for the car, walking around the city, I, I have to walk over this bridge that's spanning a highway. And I remembered this walk as I'm looking for the car and I'm watching all the normal people go to work, all dressed nice and everything. And I felt totally disconnected from the rest of the world. I felt like I was like, like watching a movie that everybody else was like on a screen or something. And I was outside of it. And I just, I, I was on this bridge crossing the highway and I stopped and I thought, I looked down below at the traffic passing by and I thought I would jump and I don't even know if I even thought, but I made it across the bridge. I found my car. I went home and I called Alcoholics Anonymous and I told them that I think I need help. And again, that's a moment I'll never forget in my life because the person on the other end of the phone, he didn't say anything immediately, but I could almost feel this sense of understanding from him, from this kind of a deep breath he took, that he understood the pain that I was expressing in this somehow expressing to him that I think I need help. So he told me where there was a meeting nearby where I worked at the time and uh, that I should go. And so I did, I, I went to where that meeting was, but I couldn't go into the door. And, um, and I didn't until my employer found out about my arrest and fired me. And that was finally what it took for me to open up the door of that AA meeting. And so I went in and uh, I think I was the first one there actually. And I sat in this empty room. It was a small little room. And across from me was the 12 steps and 12 traditions. And I didn't really think too much about it. I mean, I, I have to say, when I first saw the steps and the traditions, of course, the, the wording is not like the way that 
that I talked or anything. And I did notice a lot of God stuff and I wasn't a religious person, but that didn't really stand out to me. But what did stand out to me was the first step. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And I really felt that that described me perfectly. And then it was the, the next one was the um, third tradition that the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. Those two things I stood out to me on the wall. And the reason that that tradition stood out to me so well is because the thing that kept me from getting help for so long is that I just didn't think I could be an alcoholic because I was too young. And when I saw that, the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. It was like, fuck, that's all, that's all, I, I do have that. And it wasn't necessarily that I really wanted to stop drinking, but I had to stop drinking. So I guess the need was a want. Later, the, the want would come. But yeah, so people filtered in the room um, here in where I live, uh, they, they, they give you what they call a first step meeting where they go around the room and everybody shares their story with you. It can be kind of uncomfortable. In fact, my group that uh, my we agnostics group in KC, we don't do that anymore. But that, that's the tradition around here. So everybody in the room, they kind of talk to you and they share their story with you. And what I remember from that was for the first time, I heard someone say, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. And that was like, I just remember feeling shocked that, that someone would, would, would say that. Um, but then they would share their story. And I just understood, and it wasn't necessarily the way they drank or what they drank or anything like that, but it was the way that they felt when their family had to come and get them out of jail or the way that they felt when they couldn't make it to work or when they couldn't pay their bills. And it was all because of drinking. And, but as they told me this, they were, they all had jobs. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> they had jobs, they had nice clothes, and they seemed happy. In fact, there's a little bit of laughter in the room. And uh, that made me, that gave me the, what I needed to start my recovery. It gave me hope. And I went ahead and did what they suggested, which was to go to, go to meetings. And I went to a lot of meetings. I went to a lot of meetings because I had the time and I wanted to drink a lot, and I was afraid to drink. So I went to meetings. I mean, I went to five meetings a day. And uh, then I, uh, when I lost my apartment, I lived with my sister for a while. And, you know, I, I, what really helped me as I look back is I was lucky enough to fall into this group where there were a lot of guys my age. So I'm like in my mid-20s now, 20, 26 years old. And at some of the meetings I'd go to, I would often be the youngest person there. And it was, it, sometimes it felt like the people in the room were, they would talk to me in kind of a condescending voice, you know, and like I, um, like I was some silly kid or something. <laughs> but, but at this other place that I went, um, this other group where there were guys my age, I mean, we all had so much in common and we bonded and we did things outside of the meeting. So we'd go to movies they used to have AA dances and stuff we'd go to. So we did a lot of social things. And I didn't know, you know, at the time, just how much that was helping me. But it really, it really meant a lot to me. And those guys were my friends for a very, very long time. So I guess that we're, since I'm in a secular meeting, I should address the whole God business with AA. Because I'm totally an AA person. I, I'm 58 years old. Um, so I've been in 
in AA um, for the majority of my life. And I, uh, the group that I went to was one that um, read the big book repeatedly and revered it. Um, we worked the steps. We talked about the steps. Um, those filtered into me and um, became such a part of me that now it's even difficult for me to imagine dealing with a problem in my life without somehow referring to that. It's just, it's a part of me. Um, now, when I first got involved with all of this, I, I had no re religious background. My parents didn't go to church. I wasn't raised in any religion whatsoever. Um, but I will tell you that I do think AA became my religion. Uh, being an army brat, traveling around a lot, I was really good at assimilating to an environment. So I just became what I thought they were. So it's like, you know, when I lived in the Netherlands, I could be Dutch. <laughs> when I lived in New York, I could be a New Yorker. And when I was in AA, I could be an AA person. And that's what I did. And I uh, just kind of, I put out, I put to, to aside any, any questions that I had about some of the stuff that was kind of hard for me to swallow. And I just did things. Um, but I will say though, even as, as fundamentalists as a lot of the people were, we really talked about the actions more than anything. We talked about, you know, making decisions about uh, moving on with your recovery. We talked about, you know, how to do an inventory. We talked about amends. We really talked about concrete things that you actually do. So I always understood the steps and internally as a, as a practical uh, program, as a practical thing, as things that you actually do. And the God stuff, in a way, to me, was kind of mysterious and, and kind of, you know, that I like the mystery of it some for some reason. <laughs> but <laughs> and, and, I could, and, I could, and I could do fine. But then something happened. We were talking about Christopher Hitchens before the meeting. And I read his book, God is Not Great. And I read Richard Dawkins. And, you know, I can't really remember when this was. I, I once looked up my Amazon history and I, and I could pinpoint it. But it was, it was probably like in 2012, 2011 or whatever. But what was happening to me is um, I was changing slowly my attitude about God and prayer and all this. So the group that I went to, what was really important, what you'd hear people say a lot is they would do the drill. And the drill is that you start your day on your knees, asking God to give you a day of sobriety. You go to a meeting, you go home, you, you call your sponsor and you get on your knees again. You thank God for giving you another day of sobriety. That was the drill. And very often you would hear people in meetings talk about the drill, the drill, the drill, the drill. And the most important thing about the drill was getting on your knees in the morning and on your knees at night. Well, I stopped doing that uh, uh, 10 years of, of after 10 years of sober. It was actually the time my father died. And I just, I stopped praying altogether. And I don't know why, but I, I was, you know, I just stopped. I stopped. And I was okay with it. Uh, I personally was fine with it. I didn't miss it at all. <laughs> but I wasn't, I wasn't telling anybody I wasn't praying. So I was already, I was already changing. But then when I read Hitchens and Dawkins, I was convinced I was an atheist. And I remember, I remember just feeling afraid of that. And, and the reason I was afraid is that I didn't think that my 
AA group would accept me. I thought, how am I going to make AA work? And as I, and as I started thinking about this, the first thing I went to was the damn big book. I mean, it's all I knew. And so I went to that big book and, you know, and we've all done this exercise where you kind of go through a paragraph where it talks about, you know, a step or something. It talks about some, some part of the process that we follow and it gives you some practical action of, or of something that is done. And then at the end of the paragraph, it, sa it, it summarizes by saying, and now we're closer to God and God is wonderful. And because of God, we're doing this and that. Well, if you cross all that stuff out, you still have that action part in there. And so I came, I became very, very comfortable again, thinking about the steps as a program of action. And I got rid of the God part altogether. And then what, as I became more comfortable with myself as an atheist and how I would see the program, I slowly started speaking out at the group. And that was that's where it got really difficult for me because now this I'm sober for 25 years and um, the, these guys that knew me all this time were hearing me speak in a different way and uh, they didn't like it. And I remember in fact, one meeting in particular where um, they were, the, the reading said something about there will come a time and place when no human power can relieve you. You have God is only, it's only God. And I, and when it was my turn to talk, I said, well, you know, that's not true for me. There is no God. It's always been people that helped me. I don't believe there will ever be a time when people aren't around. So I think I'm, I think I'm okay. And uh, that didn't go well. So I, but, and I, they, I mean, people were correcting me. And so I, I um, learned about secular AA meetings and we started one in Kansas city. And um, so rather than leaving AA, I became more involved with it. Uh, I, I wanted our group to be connected to the rest of the AA community. And we were pretty well accepted here in Kansas city. And uh, so I went to district meetings and I went to the area assemblies and, um, I went to, uh, we went to central office meetings. Um, I was on the board of directors for the central office for a while. I got really involved and I, um, and I liked that because it reminded me of my early days in AA when I used to go to a lot of different groups and it was just nice to, to have that AA family an extended AA family. So, yeah, so, so, you know, for a while there, I think that the way that I, I just, I secularized the steps. I secularized my program. I went to secular AA meetings and uh, my recovery continued. So now I am, we're a good 20. So now I'm, I'm moving in a different direction. Um, I introduced myself not as I'm John, I'm an alcoholic. And it's a habit for me to say that, but I introduced myself as a person in long-term recovery intentionally. And I'm doing that because I want to get more involved with my local um, state here in Missouri and the, and people who work in recovery in Missouri to help reduce the stigma of addiction and help, um, um, you know, advocate for change and uh, to help people in recovery. And, um, you know, and, and I, I don't need to be identified as the disease as far as I'm concerned but as a person in recovery, a person who's been going through a lot of change and will continue to do that. So that's, 
that's what I want to do. And, and, and so that's where my focus is today. I, I'm, um, I'm learning this and, and I think, I guess I can credit COVID for this to a certain extent, but, but I, and I'll go to the podcast because the podcast had a lot to do with this too. Um, actually the podcast had a lot five years ago, I started a podcast, the AA beyond belief podcast, and now it's the beyond belief sobriety podcast. But, um, I started that when we started the website, AA beyond belief. And I did that because my friend Roger C thought he was going to retire and wanted me to do that. So I did. And that opened up the world for me. Um, someone mentioned about the interview I did with Kaylee in Ireland. Um, I did speak with her. I spoke with people from all over the world. Um, all of them, you know, atheist agnostic, somehow viewing themselves as secular. And they, what was really interesting for me to learn. And I, so now I've talked to a couple hundred, couple hundred people maybe. Um, and what interests me is just how varied our experiences when we describe it, even, a, even an atheist, you know, there are some of us who still find spirituality valuable. Some of us find the steps valuable. Some of us still like the big book. Um, some of us don't have use for any of that. Um, some of us um, have been treated horribly by traditional AA and others have not. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's a huge variety of experience. And I just find that fascinating. But it also was um, fascinating for me to learn. Um, I got, you know, I'm, I'm no longer just in Kansas City, Missouri and talking to people in AA in Kansas City, Missouri, but I've got this larger community that I'm connected to. And I'm, I'm learning from these people. I'm learning different things, different ways of thinking about my recovery and AA itself. So that was just a huge, that, 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 that just was huge for me to, to have that. And it led me to where I'm at now, which is learning about, learning that AA is one piece of the puzzle, that it's, that it's an island and an ocean of recovery. And there are more and more groups that are springing up all the time that we're not even aware of, but it's like, for example, I met somebody that I did a podcast with that I'll be um, airing soon from an organization called Ben's Friends. You might not have ever heard of Ben's Friends, but what it is, it's a collection of people who work in the restaurant industry who've gotten together and are helping each other stay sober, not using any particular program, they're not that organized, but they get together online. There's another organization, I can't remember what it is, but it's specifically black women who get together. They've, they've, they've met each other online. They get together and they help each other. There are little Facebook groups that aren't even affiliated with AA of people who just get together and are helping each other stay sober. And so you've got, you've got all, these, all these little things happening all over the place. And then I've learned, I, I just recently took some training for the state of Missouri to become a peer support specialist, which here in Missouri is someone who works with a person in recovery as they're going through treatment to act as their advocate with their treatment team. And, I, and when I went through that training, I met people from across the state who are involved with recovery in different aspects of it. And I learned about this huge network of people just in my state alone that are connected with the state government and all these wonderful programs that they have um, to help um, solve or help 
in some way deal with the addiction problem in my state. And it was just really inspiring to me to meet these people and to, um, and also not just the people, but, but the people that work for the state, the government, I was so impressed. Um, I mean, these are people that are passionate about what they're doing, but they, they really want to make a difference um, in this state and save people's lives. So anyway, I'm very excited about that. And so I'm, I'm in some groups now where I'm meeting up with these people, other peer support specialists, and we, we're talking about, uh, oh, I'm, I'm still learning. I'm just, I'm just getting my toes, wet, toes in the water here, but um, I'm, I'm learning about a greater community of people in recovery. And it's not necessarily just limited to AA. Um, and I guess one of the great lessons that I have learned through my time as a secular person in AA, or I just, just whatever, I just, this is what I've learned, is that you have to meet people where they are if you want to help somebody, you can't expect them to um, conform to whatever you think they should, their recovery should be. Um, everybody's recovery is unique. I've learned that from the podcast. Um, yeah, all these atheists in recovery, and they all do it differently. And you know, the same thing is true for the, for the believers. Uh, people just have to find their own way. It's their own experience. So I mean, anytime that somebody tries to tell me that I have to walk this narrow path, you know, first of all, they don't understand AA if they tell you if that that's what you want to do, but it's just not, it's just not going to work. So I'm excited now about really, you know, not just seeing myself as a atheist in AA, but just as a person in recovery who wants to help other people, regardless of, the, of what they believe or not. And I can meet those people where they are. And um, I can help them, you know, find the resources that help them with what they need. So uh, it's really cool. So it's been an amazing journey. Um, you know, this COVID thing too uh, has, what <laughs> this has changed our, our recovery world uh, for good probably. Um, who else? needs other people and a, a community of people and the personal interaction more, I, I don't know, than people in recovery. And to have that taken away from us is pretty frightening, you know, when you can't go into the room and hug people and see people. But boy, we found a way to get around that, didn't we? <laughs> um, I feel connected. I feel just as connected as I ever have. Um, but I will tell you this, and I and I, I I should I wanted to start by apologizing for missing the last time. It's probably better that I didn't, but I am sorry. But I tell you, it's probably good that I didn't show up because I probably would have brought everybody down. <laughs> I just I um, one thing about COVID for me is that um, I don't need another app to communicate with anybody. I, you know, when I, when I spend, when I spend all day long at work, you know, talking to people through a screen and it's just sometimes, I don't know, just, I felt overwhelmed. I felt overwhelmed with all the different um, messages and I just, I shut down. Like I told before the meeting, my, my phone 
um, battery went out. I didn't even charge it up. I just let it go. I just, I didn't read my email. I, I, I just, I just shut down. So I apologize, but that's, that's what happened. And, um, but like I say, if I, if I would have somehow made it, I, I, I probably wouldn't have been that pleasant to listen to, <laughs> but, um, I will tell you, it's good to be here. I really, I really do appreciate you inviting me and giving me this opportunity. I hope that it's been somewhat beneficial to you. Um, I will tell you it's helpful to me. It always is when, whenever I do this. Um, so thank you. I guess I'll end with that. Appreciate it.